I am all for paying to market to new customers, but I'll never be able to wrap my mind around paying for our own diners. Why should we have to pay cover fees? It's like getting penalized for being busy. That's why I'm a huge fan of Yelp Guest Manager. It's a reservation and waitlist system connected to a diner network nine times larger than Open Table, and they never charge cover fees. Learn about their new $99 per month plan for newly opened restaurants at restaurants.yelp.com forward slash podcast or call 877-571-9357 and tell them full comp sent you. Now here we go. As tough as the industry has been, and yeah, you hear all the statistics, they say 90% of the new restaurants fail in the first two years, you know, they throw this out to you. I still believe that, you know, the opportunity in the business is still incredible. And no matter how you dot your I's and cross your T's, you're always going to run into a problem, no matter how good you are. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. What is the only rule that matters in our industry? If you ask today's guest, Selwyn Yaslowitz, the rule is simple, keep it simple. Other than that, I'd argue Selwyn has broken every rule in the book. In today's conversation, Selwyn explains how big rents, big menus, and big profits can all work together. Well, I was born in Cape Town, South Africa, and my background is finance economics. I left South Africa when I was 23, and I traveled for a year, and eventually arrived in Los Angeles, and I needed a job, and I needed a green card, and I needed money. Very simple things. <laughs> a friend of mine happened to apply for a job as the assistant controller for a group of restaurants in Santa Monica. She never got the job. I said, can I apply for the job? I got the job. That was my first introduction to the restaurant industry. And I happened to hook up with the owner of the restaurant group, Elizabeth Burns. And uh-huh. so Elizabeth was an incredible person and she became my mentor. And I was able to really look at the business through a different lens. And she loved my attitude and my energy that I brought to the business. And then I met two of her children and they were in the her business. And we eventually started a Marmalade in 1989. And that's how Marmalade started in Santa Monica. And what was the inspiration behind Marmalade Cafe? What unserved or underserved need did you feel like you were meeting in the community with it? Well, my partner, Bobby, at the time, he said that there's a space on Montana Avenue that he always loved. It was called Carl's Bakery. It was small. It's half the size of where we are right now. And so he approached, he wanted, he thought there was a great place for to-go business. And so we all got together and we worked out that let's build a place that it's going to be a showpiece for to-go business and eventually catering. Uh, Bonnie was his sister. She was very talented with the catering part of it. So I was the, the business guy and the in terms of pulling it all together. And Bobby was the ideas guy with food. And Bonnie was with the catering. So we kind of took over. a We doubled the space. Then we met the landlord, who was Steve Soberoff at the time. And Steve really believed in us. And he gave us the opportunity to open the first marmalade. I mean, that's very forward thinking, don't you think, especially for the times? It was. And a lot of concepts has followed Marmalade, the look of it on Montana. And as we built Montana, we realized it was a very busy place, but we realized the biggest problem we have, we don't have seating, we don't have alcohol, 
we can't open for dinner. You know, as you say, what you learn, your first concept, how you design it, you realize where we couldn't expand it other than catering. And catering became the showpiece, and then we started getting all these big parties, which helped to give a great cash flow and help the business to get off the ground. So that's why when we opened the second location in Malibu, it was the same landlord as Steve Sobroff who owned the same shopping center in Malibu. And he said to us, you know, he told us to come out there. And my partner went to look at it at the time. Bobby went to look at it. And the concern we had is that you've got the ocean on one side and you've got the land on the other side. Only 12,000 people lived in Malibu. And there were two other failed restaurants there before us. Right. And we just thought that this was the place. A brand would travel up the coast. It's only like 12 miles up the coast. And Steve helped us financially put some money together for us to loan some money to us. And we opened up with beer and wine and a full service restaurant. And that took off like wildfire. Everything morphed into where we felt we weren't, we could improve. You know, we realized the biggest problem, we've got this great restaurant, little restaurant in Malibu, only 3,300 square feet, and we needed a patio. And there's no patio, it's just a parking lot in Malibu. And then we opened the third restaurant in Sherman Oaks. Landlord's a great guy. He owned Mitchell Let Antiques, the store next to us. And we got a full liquor license and a little patio up front. So you can see how it's morphed. And then we went into where we thought we were lacking in Sherman Oaks. We went into Rick Caruso's first shopping center in Westlake Village in 1996. I remember we were at the tail end of the center being built. And he said, why should I give you guys the space here? And we told him, go look at other locations. If you like what we do, we'll make a deal. And he loved what we did. And we made the deal. And yeah, then you built the other restaurants, Calabasas, also Rick Caruso Project and so forth. In the early days, because I mean, again, it's so interesting that it was such a big success out the gate and then all of these subsequent successes. You usually don't see that in this industry. I mean, most people struggle to get one location to work. What do you think of the critical decisions that you made in those early days that led to the sustainable success of the brand? Well, I think we're very fortunate in, in all honesty, because everyone always asks us, did you have a business plan? I say, no. They say, but you're a business guy. I say, well, we've never had a business plan. Everything was instinctive and everything was what we felt was good. And the biggest thing I really believe, and still today, is perceived value for the customer. The customer perceives our marmalade as a great place to go to and you get great value. And so we try to maintain that all the time and reinvest money into the locations all the time. And I think that's really the key. And I always say this, and you ask me, and I'm really going to simplify it. Happy cooks, happy food, happy customers. And you know, the employees have always been number one. And I've always said, take care of the employees, the profits will come later. Take care of the employees and take care of the customers and the profits will flow. That's really what's happened over the years. And we're definitely on an employee-first operation and a customer-first operation. That's really, I believe, it's helped us to survive ups and downs in the economy. Any mistakes along the way? Any mistakes? Well, we sold to private equity in 2006, and they were gung-ho, and their attitude was that, well, it was just Bobby and myself at the time, the attitude was, if these two bozos can make the money they're making, <laughs> us private equity guys can really make it happen with systems and, and really get this going. They acquired 70% of our company in, in 2006. And immediately they went and they forced us to open in Santa Barbara because the one equity guy's family lived at the Hope Ranch. And then to go open up in, in Tustin, Orange County. And we, you know, Bobby and I made it very clear 
to the equity owners that we don't want to drive to Santa Barbara. We don't want to drive to Tustin. We don't have the manpower to do that. So if you ask me if those are mistakes, I think those are unnecessary stresses along the way, which we didn't really need. Were there any improvements, iterations? I agree that, you know, patios, full liquor and all of that. But in terms of the overall business model, how did that evolve? Did you guys begin to focus more on dine-in, takeout, catering? What did the financial model look like? Where were you really making your money at margin? Okay. Marmalade is a breakfast, lunch, and dinner concept. Everyone really knows us for a very strong breakfast, very strong brunch and lunch. And the private dining facilities we have in all the restaurants have really moved into the front of what we're all about. Because what's happened is that because COVID, and I'll address the COVID situation, how that's really made us evolve into a more aggressive concept when it comes to private dining. Because we built tents in the parking lots, all these patios, our landlords have been incredible. And in, for example, at El Segundo location, we built a tent which seats about 80 people. We put chandeliers in it and fans and made it look very uh, comfortable. And that's really helped our volume. You know, when you're booking, I always joke, the tent alone pays the rent every month. And that's a <laughs> revenue stream which we never had before. We never dreamed we could ever operate like that. And you talk about to-go business. Yes, before COVID, we used to do to-go business, but it wasn't like a super number, a huge number for to-go sales. And since COVID, yes, that's a huge number which has come into play. And to our surprise, that number has stayed. We thought after the restaurant would open, that number, that to-go business would disappear and you're back to in-dining, but it hasn't disappeared. The consumer has changed the way they operate. They like uh, having all these opportunities to have the food delivered. And so, you know, when I look at the business and saying the business model today is heavy on private dining room. We closed off a section in another restaurant in Westlake Village and built a private dining room. And we, and that we continue to do in other locations because it's a great revenue source. And once again, we feel that when consumers like marmalade and they see the value, they see the cost of having a party in a, in a room and they see the value, they choose us. You've mentioned multiple times that you have a wonderful relationship with your landlords. I'm curious, is that luck? Is that skill? Is that because you were very selective? Not luck at all. I believe it's a concerted effort. When we started Marmalade, my partner and I made a deal that we'll never, ever enter into a lease agreement with any landlord that doesn't understand the business and is not supportive of us. This business is way too stressful. We're a labor-intensive business, a capital-intensive business, and we deal with the public. And we don't want to deal with a landlord that doesn't understand how we operate. That be, they become a real partner in our success. And a perfect example is during COVID, all our landlords were incredible in working with us. And I've been the key contact with our landlords over the last 34 years. And they've seen I've really been able to, as a company, we've been able to deliver what we promised and they deliver what they promised. So, and I have a great friendly kind of relationship with our landlords. You know, Garusa is our landlord in two of our locations and he'll be often talk about, you know, we were there at the early start of his, of the shopping center, the lifestyle shopping centers that took off in, in 1996. You know, I brought up multiple times that my lease rate at Pruin Proper was $21,000 a month, which is an exceptional amount of money. But when I look at the Marmalade Cafe locations that you have all over Southern California, it's got to be some of the most expensive real estate it is. in it the is. country. It is. 
How do you make that work? Because if I'm paying twenty one thousand, you're not paying twenty one thousand. You're paying no, way no. more than if, that. If we're paying twenty one thousand, we'd be having a different conversation. <laughs> <laughs> no, our rents obviously way way more than that in all our locations, and we make it work because we do the volume, and we remember we breakfast, lunch, and dinner component. We're three meals. So if you look at your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, your private dining rooms, your to go business, and that's huge. And so it works because you have to make sure that your labor costs are in line to be able to support the rent. When my peers in the industry ask me how much rent we pay and I share with them how much rent we pay, they die. For sure. How do you stay in business? Well, we just have to make sure everything else adds up to leave something left on the bottom line. And it works because all those costs we monitor and we put more responsibility onto our management team to produce on the bottom line and to make sure that we can meet our obligations. I mean, to fill a restaurant for three services across multiple locations is aggressive. And Marmalade Cafe started before social media. I mean, before the internet was really a thing that people use to market. How has the marketing of the restaurants evolved over the last 25 years? Well, once again, there's no strategic plan, do you? And <laughs> we're not really big on aggressively marketing through social media. We do social media, but it's not like a massive expense for us. But what we do do is, which is amazing, we have an e-club that our customers sign up for. We send out promotions or we send out a lot of communication with our customers. And each location has about 25,000 e-club members. That's a very powerful tool because our customers love hearing from us and we get the feedback from them. So that's really a very powerful marketing tool by constantly communicating with your customers via the e-clubs. Uh, social media is great, which every time a new customers come in, I always ask them, I said, how did you hear about Marmalade? So we Googled you, we Googled for best breakfast place and you guys came up and we were in town and that's how we found you. So I believe that the algorithm that works is when people say nice things about you and they're complimentary, then when people look you up on Google or Yelp, whatever, that kind of recommends you to come to one of our locations. So. It seems to be working. And once again, it's no strategic plan. It's just working. Well, again, if we get back to location, 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 I guess you don't really need a director of social media when there's so much foot traffic around all of your locations. Location itself is part of the marketing strategy. Well, that's true to a certain extent. But for example, let's take our El Segundo location. There's nothing around it whatsoever. It's in the back of a parking lot. Every single retail store has since left. You've got creative office space, which is being built, and we're doing 30% more sales over than pre-COVID. And you really have to get in your car and decide to drive down there, go to the end of the parking lot, look on the right-hand side, and see a freestanding building over there. So I really believe we are neighborhood cafes, and we give value to the customers. So people look for us, and they go out of the way to look for us, and they make an effort to get to us. Yes, we have a location in the you know the Grove Farmers and Farmers Market, and there are millions of people walking past your front door, and that's really incredible. That's a real fantastic bonus. But we have to work at other locations, and I think that a lot of the locations have developed, and the business has improved and increased over the years because once again, having the private parties. When a customer likes you, they book a private party, say for eighty people. Maybe seventy nine of those other people have never been to a marmalade and get yeah. exposed to us. And then it becomes their favorite restaurant, hopefully. And I believe that's how it's really evolved over the years. How would you describe your role? 
let's say before private equity bought a large chunk of the company. And we'll get into that whole story as well, because it's fascinating. But how did you spend your days? Because you're a man that's consistently worked on the business, not in the business. And so now, how did that evolution take place? Well, I have a tremendous passion for Marmalade, and I want to make sure the brand stays around forever and ever. And so I was able to acquire it back from the private equity about 10 years ago and restructure the company in such a way that our key players run the company on a day-to-day basis. I'm very involved in all the leases and in strategy in the company. And so that keeps me fresh and on my toes. And I don't deal the day-to-day you know, scheduling in the restaurants or making sure that the doors are open on time and the boiler breaks. They're not going to call me. They'll call out the key players in the company. And the key players are highly motivated. Each restaurant is run by a general manager. It's really like their own entrepreneur. It's running like their own business because we pay a base salary with a very substantial percentage of all profits above a certain amount. And if the managers perform, they know how to perform. They know how to make money. So it allows me the freedom to be involved in the California Restaurant Association state body to fight on behalf of other restaurants and to be involved in a a lot of other things, all connected to the restaurant industry. It's a passion that I've always had since I was 23 years old. And my background is accounting and economics. I don't like being an accountant. I love people. (laughs) I love the restaurant business. And I love dealing with the public. And it's just a perfect blend for me. And I've arrived at a stage in my life that it's kind of the last five years hasn't happened by accident. I've kind of planned it out that I can be involved at this level, at this stage of my life. What is the management strategy? Where are you finding talent? How are you grooming talent? Are you guys hiring people better than you and letting them take the lead? Or are you growing your talent from within? We're definitely growing the talent from within. We identify people inside the company. And, you know, most of the time, the pool of talent we have working as whatever, it's a bartender or a server or in the kitchen, they see how Marmalade operates. And they'll say, see me every uh, in the restaurant, see all our top managers in the restaurant, or see Juan who runs the day-to-day, he's the, uh, the whole company. And they see how committed we are to the restaurant and committed we are to employees' well-being. And many of them ask us if they can, can go into management. We, we're talking about it this morning. We're finding it happening more and more right now. In the last, just the last month, people are looking for more security, more opportunity from within. And we identify it, we spend the money on them, we train them, we pay a very, very fair salary with the 401ks and health insurance and all those kind of things. And we find that people definitely stay and they perform. They understand the culture of the company. That's the most important thing. You have to hire personality. You can't train common sense. And so yeah. once someone comes with a big personality and it's got potential leadership role, you know, a lot of our perfect example, we've got one of our superstar general managers. He's 29 years old. He started working as a company as a host at 16. He has been a superstar. He's been to all of our locations and he's a big producer in the company. He gets compensated very well and he does very well. And he is a major move and shake in the company. And we love that. We respect that and we encourage that. To reflect inward for a moment, what qualities do you think you possess that have led to your professional success? Because I must tell you, it's, I think it would be hard for anyone to listen to this and not only want the success that you've achieved, but also 
the ease with which you seem to live life when it seems so stressful and so anxiety-ridden for so many of us? Well, the restaurant business is a very stressful business, and you have two choices. Either you learn coping mechanisms to deal with the stress. I'll put it in perspective. My wife and my children have never, ever entered this business, never, ever wanted to be in the business because they saw the kind of stress that I went through growing the company. They saw how we used to borrow a million dollars at a time for each location and personally guarantee it. They saw that comes with stress. That's, yeah. you know, people say to me all the time, oh, you seem such a happy guy. There's stress to be involved. And I had to learn over time how to cope with stress. We started off when I was 32 years old and, and you know, I was very gung-ho and had the enthusiasm and I still got the enthusiasm today. I've never lost that glow for enthusiasm and belief in the restaurant industry. As tough as the industry has been, and yeah, you hear all the statistics, they say 90% of new restaurants fail in the first two years, you know, they throw this out to you. But there is, I still believe that, you know, the opportunity in the business is still incredible. And I think that it's very difficult today to build in this kind of political and economic environment to build a full service restaurant at our price range starting from scratch. That's why I think you've seen a lot of concepts evolve, full over-the-counter concepts, eliminating labor, cutting down on labor. So I think it'd be very difficult at our price range to build a restaurant and spend $3 million building it to make economic sense. We're very fortunate that we're in great locations and we built these restaurants already. And getting back to the stress factor, yeah, there have been times I've had to really compartmentalize the stress and to deal with it, as my youngest son would say, one day at a time. Yeah. Because if you start worrying about the future all the time, and yes, I do worry about the future, I did, I wouldn't be able to cope. Because, you know, the whole environment, the legal situation with labor is a moving target, a daily moving target. And no matter how you dot your I's and cross your T's, you're always going to run into a problem, no matter how good you are. Let's talk about that. Let's get into some of the potential landmines. Lord knows it in the state of California, there are plenty. Is that what inspired you to join the California Restaurant Association? What inspired me was originally Elizabeth Burns was very involved in the California Restaurant Association. And she lost her husband at a very young age. They started the business together. She found herself at the age of, I believe, in her 40s as owning a group of seven restaurants and losing her husband when he was 45 years old. So she belonged to the California Restaurant Association. She believed it was one of her saviors. It helped her to really network with people and people who are very successful in our industry to support her. And she really encouraged me to get involved. And I started getting involved about 26 years ago. And it just became a natural way to go. You know, a lot of people, a lot of restaurant operators feel, multiple restaurant operators, feel that they haven't got time to divert to an association. What does association do on our behalf? But they really understood how, how people work so hard voluntarily to fight against legislation, to fight so restaurants can stay in business, to avoid punishing legislation that people that legislators don't really understand what they're doing, don't understand the unintended consequences of what they're proposing. So I've really learned a lot by belonging to this group. And not only that, the people that I've met along the way have been instrumental in helping me to find ways of being more successful in business and to approaching business differently. And, you know, they all become like the silent board of directors. That's certainly one of the short-term and long-term benefits is I think for many independent restaurateurs, we feel alone, we feel 
isolated, but dropping into the California Restaurant Association, for me personally, and I know for you as well, it opened a lot of doors and connected me with, again, really savvy, successful restaurateurs that were happy to share best practices that made me a better entrepreneur and a better restaurateur. Well, that's right. And restaurateurs are amazing people because they're very happy to share. And they're very happy to share what makes them successful and what doesn't make them successful. And, you know, I participate in many like forums and groups and we, the guys, people are the guys and everyone's just so fantastic in the way they share. There are not many industries which share the way restaurant operators share. And they're willing to share what helps them retain the employees. But maybe people would be fearful for taking away the competitive edge. I don't know. But restauranteurs aren't like that. Talk to me about a successful partnership. How long have you and your partners been working together on Marmalade? Well, well, that ended many years ago. As soon as the private equity took over Marmalade, my one partner left the business in 2008 or left Marmalade. His sister was still just running one store for us, but she really wasn't involved in the day-to-day operation of the general business. She left the business about five, six years ago. So... You know, it's been an evolving with going through private equity, buying it back from private equity, restructuring it with your, the management of the company. I've always believed in the employees and, you know, for the continuity of Marmalade, you want the next generation. Then the group that are operating on a day to day basis, they're all like 40 and below, which really is inspiring because they value what I do and I value what they do because they've got incredible energy, incredible enthusiasm for Marmalade. And that's why I believe Marmalade will be around for a long, long time. I honestly believe Marmalade is more relevant today than it was 34 years ago. It's pretty amazing. Why buy it back from private equity? Why not just retire? No, because I could see the private equity did not understand our business. And if they continued operating the way they were continuing, it wouldn't be healthy for our business. And Marmalade was a very, very big, important part of my life, my legacy, and what I do. And I will not see it fail. I'll give you a perfect example. When private equity took over, my partner and I wore many hats. I wore a tremendous amount of hats in terms of, you know, we're a small company. We never had someone in charge of HR. We've never had a CFO. We never had, you know, you say marketing, any of those positions. I did a lot of those positions and my partner ran the food and design and other work with the designers of the restaurant. So that's all we had. We had a corporate office of five people and that's it. And then general managers in each location. The five people were administration and accounting. When the private equity took over, they hired separately a CFO, director of marketing, a executive chef. They went through about five major positions. They created, they spent a million dollars of salaries, which we never wow. had. And you know, for a million dollars to come off your bottom line, you have to make many, many more millions to account for that. So, yeah, it's just a different mindset. They were were very nice people. They were great guys. But they're all like in their 30s, MBAs from Stanford and Harvard and, you know, that kind of thing. And it was, they didn't understand the restaurant business. And we were 10 companies in this portfolio. We're the only restaurant group in this portfolio. You know what it's like. I mean, it takes a special kind of person to understand our industry. And that's the reason why I was able to buy it back about 10 years ago. We bought it back and we got it right back on track in terms of profitability and where it should be. And because it back to the basics of restaurant 101, you know, it wasn't a game. It was something just go down to the bare basics. 
And we're not in it to say, oh, we're only holding on for five years and we're going to sell it in five years and squeeze the profitability. We've never had that mentality. Once again, you know, take care of the customers, take care of the employees and the profits will come. Looking back over the last 35 years, is there anything you would do differently? And how would that have affected the outcome? Not really. I don't live with the regrets. I'm just very grateful that I was able to arrive when I was 23 years old, work really hard, having met Elizabeth Burns. I started off with my two partners initially, having this incredible group of employees that I like to believe that I've been able to help to attract and who really believe in Marmalade. They really feel committed and I love people and I don't really have regrets at all. I look back and I'm just grateful. I live in gratitude that I've had this opportunity to... Now, always people say, oh, what makes Marmalade successful? What makes Marmalade successful, in my opinion, we employ 500 people that rely on Marmalade to support their families. That's success to me. Talk to me about legacy. What are your goals for this post-pandemic chapter of your life and for the restaurant group moving forward? Well, I think the restaurant group has really, obviously at the beginning of the pandemic, it was very scary because of the unknown. We didn't know about PPP loans, the possibility of that on the horizon. So initially we were all like, hands down, say, okay, how are we going to survive this? And we're very fortunate that we had a substantial amount of cash in the bank to ride this and take care of our employees, keep all the health benefits, keep all those, and just take care of them. So as we got through COVID, which is obviously not 100% through yet, but as we progressed to see the light at the end of the tunnel, we were very optimistic about the future. We'll talk about the economy. That's a whole different story we have to deal with. But we feel very optimistic and we solidified our base in terms of our management, making sure that we have the right people in the right positions. And we're going to just assess, just keep Marmalade on track with you know strong meal periods, strong catering, strong private dining. And if the opportunity comes that we feel we can partner with a hotel and build a boutique Marmalade in a hotel, I see that as potential on the horizon. I, you know, a lot of people, a lot of hotels are, have communicated with us and we'll see that could be an opportunity, but I wouldn't go build a full-service restaurant today in the climate in California today because it's just politically, legally, the laws are changed by the day. It's just it's making it very costly to operate in California. This is an industry podcast, and at the end of every episode, I'd like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the audience. Do you have any advice or words of encouragement you'd like to offer? Stick to the basics in this business and make sure you have the passion for it and the staying power to keep your concept moving forward and just take care of employees. I know it sounds very simple. I know it sounds like, oh, well, if, if it's that simple, why aren't lots of people doing it? But apparently it's not that simple for those basic things. And I really believe the future of the restaurant industry is a great future. You know, we reinvent ourselves all the time. I see my peers, they're reinventing themselves with these over-the-counter service operations and they, they're adventurous. And that's why California is still great because we are innovative and we don't lie down and just take it. And we get up and say, what else can we do to improve? That's Selwyn Yoslowitz. For more on Marmalade Cafe, visit MarmaladeCafe.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.